Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. Episode is airing on Tuesday, September 26th, 2023. Hello, everyone. It's Shannon, and we are back for another Tuesday morning episode. You know what you're here for. Today, we have an author interview, and it will be with author Carrie Mayer, who I was delighted to welcome back to the podcast. Um, she has written a fantastic and so timely um, historical novel that I encourage you all to read if historical fiction is your thing. After the interview, of course, I will be back to talk to you about some of this week's new releases. So we will get started with the usual housekeeping information, and then we will get into the episode itself. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Book Bistro Podcast. There we have our usual Facebook page where we keep track of our Wednesday reads and also post information about the Friday episodes. We also have a Facebook listener group that you're welcome to join. And if you prefer a different type of listener group, you can contact us and ask about our WhatsApp group. Both groups are pretty small, not super high traffic, and we would love to have you. If you want to get in touch with us off of social media, you can do so by sending an email to thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for our main hosting page where you can find information on the podcatchers that make Book Bistro available to you, you can find that information in our show notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and today I am here with author Carrie Mayer, who has very kindly agreed to return to Book Bistro to chat about her latest release. This is All You Have to Do is Call, and it releases in the U.S. on September 19th. Carrie, thank you so much for joining me again today. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. I'm really excited to chat with you today. So can we start with a bit of a brief introduction to All You Have to Do is Call in case listeners haven't read any of the pre-publicity stuff or, you know, haven't looked at the blurb? Sure. So All You Have to Do is Call is set in Chicago in the early 1970s, and it is about an illegal women's health clinic that is running in Chicago before Roe. And it is loosely based on the Jane Collective, the real-life Jane Collective um, that offered safe, um, inexpensive, uh, illegal abortions before Roe. I think, you know, given sort of everything that's going on in our country, it is such a, a timely topic to explore. I also have to say that I really love this period of history because it's not something that we really see a lot in historical fiction. No, it isn't. You know, I think we're starting to see a few more sort of 70s um, historicals coming out. You know, this summer there was The Sunset Crowd by Karen Tanabe. Um 
uh, Jane Green wrote one called Sister Stardust. Um, so I oh, think increasing yeah. interest. Um, but you're right. It's it's an it's an, a relatively unmined period, and it's gosh, it's so rich in um, in material. I mean, just absolutely so much is happening in the early seventies. So it's really, it was really an exciting privilege to to write about this time. It always kind of messes with my mind to see it listed as historical fiction because, like, that's just you know the decade before I was born, right? Yeah. And so it's weird to think like, oh, this is historical fiction, but you know, ten years later, I would be born. I mean, in my case, only like a few years later, I was born. I was born in 1975. So, so ah, okay. Um, yeah. So I think that the threshold for historical fiction is people generally think of it as 50 years. If it's 50, happened 50 or more years ago, then we can call it historical, <laughs> even though it's it's very much within living memory for many, many, many readers. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, so many people. Yeah. It's it's just it's a weird thing to think about. Um just as a reader, you know, I'm used to thinking of historical fiction as like, you know, World War II and earlier. Yes. Um, and then you see like the 60s and the 70s being considered historical fiction. I'm just like, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they've they only, be, you know, because of that kind of 50 year threshold, they're all, the late 60s and early 70s are only just coming into the realm of historical fiction. Just five to 10 years ago, they weren't considered historical. Right. Yeah. It is. It's 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 a funny. It's a funny thing. Um, you know, in ten more years, when the eighties are considered historical, I will really feel old. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, yes, because there are quite a few books, you know, that already are set in the eighties. Sure, um, but they're just not considered historical at this point in time. Correct. 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 When I start seeing jelly bracelets and jelly shoes and our characters. I'm oh like, my God. Jelly shoes. I know. Right. <laughs> I haven't thought about those like forever. I can't imagine actually wearing them now. They'd be like incredibly uncomfortable, I would oh, think, but I, I, I loved them as a kid. Me too. They were sparkly. <laughs> I'm guessing if I, oh God, my, my feet would, would rebel forever. I'm sure. Yes. So let's talk about some of the research that you did, um, not only into this, you know, the time period, but into what it took to create sort of this women's health clinic in in real life and kind of what you used to to bring it to life on the page. Um, yeah, this is such a good question. And I think um, as with many things, historical fiction, it was sort of like putting together the pieces of a puzzle, right? So I got a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, you know, I read um, sort of about the, the globally about the feminist movement. I, I re-dipped into um, Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. Um, there are a couple of nonfiction books about the Jane Collective that I read. Um, you know, I read a lot of, you know, online articles. Um, I read, I read and spoke to a couple of academics who, um, sort of specialize in this period of women's history and, and activism, which was also really interesting. Um, you know, one, one who she actually said to me when we were, we were chatting, she was like, please show how boring it actually was to be, um, <laughs> um, an activist, you know, and that was something I had already tuned in to I, I don't which isn't to say the book is boring it's not right but you know the, 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 um, 
No, I mean, in fact, this book is more action packed than any book I've written, you know, prior prior to this. Um, but I, you know, what I think what she was articulating and was something I had already tuned into in my research is that, and I have a character reflect this, is that real activism and real social change is created from a million to-do lists. You know, like, and in the case of the, the Jane Collective, you know, they had to buy Kotex and Kleenex and wash sheets and oh, yeah. pieces. And, you know, just like, it was like running a household in, in many ways and, you know, like this clinic. Um, so, and and what, what all that adds up to is this remarkable act of activism and bravery that, of, of women helping other women. Um, right. But it's made up of really pretty, a lot of, a lot of mundane tasks. I think we, we think of, of activism and social justice as like all the stuff that we see sort of on the front lines, you know, the things that are on the news right? and the things that in some ways like make it seem perhaps more glamorous than, than dangerous or tedious, um, and I think sometimes people end up being a little disappointed when they actually, you know, get deep into the work and they find out like, yeah, there are some times when, you know, you might be picketing yeah. or, you know, various other things, but most of your time is not going to be spent in those ways. Yes. Uh, amen to that. And, you know, I mean, and listen, I, I'm not going to fault movies for their own medium, but like, no. movies, but like, you know, one of the things, one of the, the movies I watched in my research was about, was the, I'm not going to remember what it was called, but it was the film about the democratic national convention in Chicago in 1968 that went wrong. Um, and and, you know, you see this movie and it's this like high stakes, like heart pounding, you know, are they going to get arrested? What's going to happen? There's a trial, you know, all of this stuff. But as you just articulated, that's that's the sort of front front line part. Right. Right. Like, it's not it doesn't show all the many things that went into it um, and led up to it all the phone calls, the the pamphlets, the the letter writing, you know, photocopying, stuffing envelopes, all that stuff. Right. And I think that's, you know, the, the not that there's any part I would say that's like more important than the rest, because obviously you need the whole process in order to right. make social change a reality. But I think it is a part that doesn't get the attention um, that, yeah. you know, perhaps it should and that people should really think about, like, you need all of those small moving parts. Yes, yes. No job really is too small. And 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 every every little bit helps. You know, I, I you know, I also think about like, the you know, the, the, the everyone in every every city has an NPR, you know, giving campaign, you know, really, those $10 do help. <laughs> you know, every little bit counts. So was there a part of this book that you found like surprising? Like, did you learn something that you really didn't expect to learn either during your research or during just your overall like writing and editing processes? Yeah. You know, I think that the, the central thing that I, that I was surprised by, and I really learned a lot from thinking about was the difference in the way abortion was discussed and even thought about in this period to the way it's discussed and thought about now. And I really did a lot of reflecting on my own growing up. And 
Um, you know, I was raised Catholic, um, which was actually less important than the fact that I was raised in a pretty red part of California. Um, and my parents were, were pretty liberal on these kinds of issues, but I was raised with the language of, you know, you have to imagine me putting rabbit ears around this term pro-life, right. You know, uh, uh-huh. you know um, which we, you know, and, but the, the so-called pro-life movement hadn't even started yet in this time that I was writing about this, this right. early 1970s. And so the language around reproductive healthcare and abortion was just fundamentally different. It was, it was rooted, the language in which everyone talked about it was rooted in feminism and women's liberation and bodily autonomy and rights. Um, it wasn't about life. Um, and so that, that kind of much more complicated language that um, has become the way people talked about talked about it in the the forty eight years of my growing up just hadn't happened yet, and so that was that was very interesting for me to realize, and for me then to write about these women, um, oh, you know, on both sides of the issue, right? Because Patty, one of my characters, is not is not what we would call pro-choice when the novel starts. Um, uh, to, but but how how would they have thought and talked about ab- abortion and reproductive justice? That was, I think, a really important part of my research. And, you know, I had early, and, and I think in early drafts of this book, I didn't really do it very well. It was, I was doing it in, its na- in a nascent form, right? And so I did get a lot of comments from beta readers, you know, women just like us who are, you know, good liberal, you know, pro, pro-choice women and men, reading the early drafts going really <laughs> like <laughs> like no one is regretting what they're doing i'm like no <laughs> so and then you know so in subsequent drafts that was really one of my challenges was to go in and really kind of like um bolster up the the ways in which the women think internally and and then use language to talk about this this service they're providing the women of Chicago. So when you were creating your characters, like did you sort of base them on people that you that you read about, like from people that actually um, participated in the Jane Collective, or did you kind of make like composite characters that fit like you know several different people that you knew about? Like how did your characters kind of become? the people that readers will meet on the page. Uh, I'm really glad you asked that because this, this is one of the ways in which this book is a real departure from my first three um, historicals. You know, my first three historicals, we might call them biographical fiction. They're about real women. Right. right? Real actual people that you can like research and know about, you know, aside from like what's covered in, in the books. Exactly. So this is not the case with this novel. And they are the my characters, you know, my point of view characters are Veronica, Patty and Margaret. None of them and none of the secondary characters are based on real life characters. So I really oh. I really made these characters are entirely made up. They are not meant to be anything like the the real women of Jane. In fact, they're, they're much, they're older. Like I, I, one of the things I really wanted to, to be able to do in this novel is have my provider characters be mothers. And, you know, when Heather Booth, uh, the real life woman who started Jane started, you know, started Jane as a referral service, she was in college. (laughs) Right. Um, you know, so I, 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 
for for many narrative reasons, I didn't want to be writing about women who were that young. I really wanted these women to be, I mean, I, I, I made them as, as old and young as I possibly could. I sort of chose 30 <laughs> um, because women in their 30s in 1970 were, you know, like we say now, like 40 is the new 30, right? I think that really is true. <laughs> um, I think that these women at 30 years old were living lives um, who, that look a little bit more like women now in their late 30s or maybe you know, or around 40. Mm -hmm. Too confusing, <laughs> as I said that. Anyway, they're older than the real life women of Jane and they're entirely made up. These are not composite characters. They're not based on real people. So... You then, excuse me, I'm being walked on by a cat. Um, <laughs> when you were creating them, like, did you have certain ideas that maybe like you started with? And then as you wrote the book, you were just like, no, actually, I think, you know, this whole thing needs to needs to change. I think these characters need to, you know, become like slightly different than perhaps you originally anticipated or envisioned oh, them. Yes. Yes, yes, they did. <laughs> um, all all three of them, and 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 also some of the secondary characters. And in fact, Eliza, who is Patty's sister and a very important character, a non POV character, but she didn't arrive until a very late draft of this book. Um, yeah, so you know that was one of the craft wise. That was really one of the great challenges of writing this book because. Unlike my first three books, where I read biographies and histories of the specific my specific characters, I didn't have that for this book. And so, right. I mean, I have written I have written five unpublished novels um, in which I made characters up out of whole cloth, but I hadn't done it in a long time <laughs> when I sat down to write this book. So it was sort of like relearning how to do that. And in fact, at some stage, my editor actually suggest to me, suggested to me, she's like, you know, Carrie, like maybe in order to get to know these characters better, you might want to think about writing like a little mini biography for each of them to because you've you've been able to read biographies in the past. Um, and I was like, that's a good idea. <laughs> so I did do that. I actually wrote little like you know, three to five page biographies of all my characters in order to get to know them better. I am fascinated by the many ways authors and editors find to like help to get to know the characters as they're writing them. I talked to someone once and she told me that she actually liked to journal as her like, point of view character so that uh -huh. she could really get into her head and like, you know, familiarize herself with like her voice and her thoughts. And I just thought like that was such a clever thing because, you know, as a reader, you just kind of, you see people fully formed on the page. Yes. And so we yes. don't really know yes. all of the ways that, you know, authors find to get to know these people and help us get to know them as readers. That's such that journaling from the point of view of a main character. That's a terrific idea. That's really that's that's great. Um, I might that try came from um, <laughs> Amanda Jayatisa, um, who is a suspense writer. Um, oh. She wrote My Sweet Girl um, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, and that was was something that came uh, from her when she was on the podcast at one point. Oh, I'll definitely have to. I, I'm going to try that. I like, I like it. Yeah, uh, I liked it too. I, I thought it was just a really, really cool 
way of of getting to know her characters and like then you know being very used to writing in that voice yes 100 percent. yeah and you know thrillers are so can be so voicey right yes they can um, i don't know if she writes in first person i'm terrified of first person i i haven't done it yet um i'm never say never but i haven't done it yet um but i think that if i were to ever write in first person that journaling idea would be like so important at least for a few days to just like mm-hmm. get like get in that mind um and in that voice and how was it for you this time to have multiple point of view characters it was a challenge it was really fun i enjoyed doing it and i you know i i enjoyed like leaving one character on a cliffhanger and then saying bye bye <laughs> see you in 15 pages or actually more like 30 pages cuz usually the cycle tended to be there's some interruptions to this but it tended to be veronica patty margaret right uh, so i would like you know leave patty and say see you in 30 pages <laughs> um but i would also you know, in the course of those 30 pages, when I would get back into Margaret and Veronica, I would have to go back and remind myself of where I had left Patty, even though it felt really exciting at the time. I was like, okay, wait a second. Where was I with Patty? Um, you know, and I, I, all I had to do was go back and re, you know, skim the last few pages. Right. And then you were like, okay, yes. This yeah, is- okay. Well, of course that was where I was. Um, but you know, th- you know, those same things that I hope keep readers reading kept me writing. Like I was excited to get back to certain character stories. Um, and so, and I felt like I was on to something when that cre- suspense was created in me as the writer. You know, I often think about writing in general about anything. You know, if it's boring to you, it's going to be boring to a reader. <laughs> right. Um, right. You know, so like if you find yourself 30 pages into a section that you are not excited about, I shouldn't use the word, the, 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 the pronoun you, when I get to a point where I'm 30 pages into something and I'm like, this is not fun. I'm like, well, then it's not going to be fun for a reader. <laughs> it has to be fun for me. Um, so like, what can I do to, to change the perspective or change the plot or change the character to make it a little bit more fun for everyone involved? So I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about you as a reader because one of my very favorite parts of doing what I do is finding out what people have read recently that they have loved. And so now you get to tell me. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I've done a lot. I'm going to, I'm opening up my Libro FM. I always find this question. Remarkable. Yay, Libro FM. Libro FM, if anyone is listening, doesn't know, it is a, a way of subscribing to audiobooks through your local independent bookstore, which yes. I do really recommend. It's really, it's a terrific service. Um, you know, so I just finished listening to Matrix by Lauren Groff, who also has a brand new book coming out. Um, yes, she does. Number, um, which I haven't read, but it looks really great. The Vaster Wilds. So the Matrix was terrific. Um, I also... Um, listened to uh, an, another novel about a, an abortion clinic in Boston, but it's a contemporary novel. It's called Mercy Street by Jennifer Haig. And it's terrific. Oh, um, I have this sitting on my it, iPad, but I've not read it yet. Oh, uh, well, if, and if you, if you do audiobooks, it's a great audiobook. The reader is really terrific. So I, I recommend it as a book and as an audiobook. Yeah. It's the audio that I have. 
Um, and I've, you know, I've, I've tried to do more reading recently. That's kind of, we might call it zeitgeist reading. So like novels that like really everyone's reading. So this summer I, I listened to yellow face. Um, Yay! It's so good. Oh <laughs> my God. Yellow face. I could not stop. I mean, like I listened to it so fast. <laughs> um, and, and the reader for that is also terrific. So oh, I, she is very, very good. Yeah. And so one more zeitgeisty read, um, just to finish my answer to this is, um, I loved lessons in chemistry and I cannot wait for the Apple TV series to start in October. I am a terrible person. I have not read that yet. Oh, okay. (laughs) Stop what you're doing and go, go read that one. It is, it is every bit as smart, funny, and charming as everyone says. It really is. Sometimes I I do struggle with the books that get like a ton of hype. It's like if I can read them sort of before they sure they become huge. Sometimes I do better, but then of course you know you can't read all the books before they become huge. Like it's just not a thing you can do. Yeah, no, you can't. So this one I I keep thinking about. And I'm like, oh, you know, I should really read this, and I'm like, eh, but I'll I'll read this other thing first. Um, I totally hear you on that. And I think that's why so, so many years of like zeitgeist books went by and I just didn't read them. Um, but this last year I read Lessons in Chemistry, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Yellow Face and have no regrets. All three of them were terrific. So we are winding down here. But I do want to ask you before I let you dash off to whatever you have next. Um, when you are on social media, do you describe your social media photos? I don't, and I should. But why? <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm. I, it's it's like anything. Like I am. Well, for me, the. If, when, if I haven't started doing something, the it's like looking up at a mountain. It's like, how do I start doing <laughs> that? <laughs> um, but then once I do it, it doesn't seem that it doesn't seem that bad anymore. So it's a it's a good reminder that I should do that. Yeah, I think you know accessibility, especially as things become more and more digital, and you know more yeah. of the world becomes reflected in social media. Um, I think the more accessible and inclusive the world can be, um, I think the the better off we we all are. And that includes people who, for whatever reason, either can't physically see or can't neurologically interpret the contents of a photo. It's it's a great point, And thank you for the reminder. You're welcome. So where can people find you on social media? I am mostly on Instagram. Um, and my handle is at Carrie Mayer Writer. Um, I do also have a website. Um, it's a fairly static website, um, but I do update it with my events. Oh, and the other sort of, this is like a new space. I am on Substack now. I keep hearing um, about that. I do not Substack, know how to use it or what it is. But it's, So it's, it's called a newsletter platform, but it's really more of like a blog newsletter hybrid. And so, and lots of writers are going there. So you can subscribe to people for free and get um, kind of just 
what you think of as a newsletter, like sort of news and information. Okay. Uh, and so you can you can do that for 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 the person, or um, for a pretty minimal amount of money, you can subscribe subscribe for like, usually it's like five dollars a month or fifty dollars a year. And at that price, you wind up getting exclusive content. So like, for instance, I I serialized the original ending of the Paris bookseller. Oh. There were 80 pages that wound up of that book that wound up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> um, and so, but but most of that is behind a paywall. Ah, so okay. You have to subscribe um, for for. The, for the money <laughs> to to access most most of that content. But I do right now mostly I'm publishing free content because I would like people to subscribe. I would and I'd like people I'd like to interact with people in that way. I think it's a pretty exciting platform. I have never even like gone over there. I see it all the time people talk about it. I'm like what is that? But there's so many new um social media platforms that I, I just don't keep up but this sounds like sort of a like a newsletter kind of like patreon um that's exactly like what, hybrid that that's exactly what it is and there there's a cape i have not done this yet because again it's like being at the bottom of the mountain and looking up it um but there are there are possibilities for like live chats and you can you can off i know some writers who are offering like live zoom um meetings to their for their paid subscribers so there are oh, many, wow. many cool things you can do within the Substack platform. And how do people find you over there? Um, you know, I think the easiest thing to do, if you already belong to Substack, you just look me up, um, Carrie Mayer, and my Substack is called uh, Sandcastles. Um, or if you're not on Substack yet, you can Google Substack Carrie Mayer, and there I'll be. <laughs> ah. Google. Google. How we love it. Uh, yeah, I know. It's really, <laughs> it makes our up. lives so much easier. It does. It really does. It really does. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule so close to your release day. We are recording um, just about a week ahead of your release day. So I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me again today. And I really appreciate your having me on. It was really, it's always fun to chat with you. So once again, this has been a discussion with author Carrie Mayer about her upcoming novel, All You Have to Do is Call, which releases in the U.S. on Tuesday, September 19th. All right, so we are here to talk about new books. And as always, I'm going to start with some things that you've heard us talk about before on our most anticipated releases of September episode. And both of these books that I'm going to mention are books that Christine mentioned on that episode. So we have The Museum of Failures by Thriti Umragar and The Armor of Light, which is book four in the Kingsbridge series by Ken Follett. Now, moving on to some books that we haven't talked about. I'm going to be a little different here and talk about a few holiday-themed books. You all know that these are not my thing, right? I'm just not a big holiday book person. But so many of the Beastresses are, and so many listeners love our holiday-themed episodes that I did want to highlight a few um, that are coming out. So 
I'm not going to have a lot to say about these because this is just not a genre that I read. Um, but I do want to let you know in case, I guess this isn't really a genre, it's more of a theme. Um, but I do want you all to know what's out there in case you are looking for some holiday books. So we have Bright Lights, Big Christmas by Mary Kay Andrews. Um, Sarah and Stacey, and I think Natalia have read some of her stuff in the past, and I think she's been talked about on the podcast before. We have Faking Christmas by Carrie Winfrey, and Winfrey has written a couple of novels that I have been interested in checking out. Um, oh, I can't. One about a toy factory, which looked really cool to me. Um, we then have Santa and Company by Fern Michaels, and I have been a Fern Michaels fan for such a long time. Um, I love their romantic suspense. They used to write some really great historical fiction and or historical romance. And when I'm looking for revenge-based books, their Sisterhood series is like beyond compare. We then have The Holiday Heartbreaker. This is Four Corners Ranch, book five by Maisie Yates. And this is an author that um, I have some of her standalones on my TBR pile. Next up is Time to Shine. This is by Rachel Reed. And it is different for me in a couple of ways. First of all, it's a holiday-themed romance. But second of all, it is a novella. And what do I always say? Short books make me angry. But everything I've read by Rachel Reed makes me incredibly happy. And so I had to mention this. She writes some phenomenal um, male-male romance. And if you've never read her and you love male-male romance, do, do check her out. So those are a few holiday books that are coming out this week. Now I'm going to move into, you know, more of, of what I usually talk about here. And we're going to start with some fantasy. We have The Fragile Threads of Power. This is Threads of Power, book one by V.E. Schwab. And this is kind of a, like a spin-off, a new look kind of at her Shades of Magic series. Um, and so we're going to go back to the four Londons. Um, each London being a different color and working with a different type of magic. This was such a cool series when I read it several years ago, the original Shades of Magic. And I am very, very excited to see what Schwab has in store for us with this sort of next look at the series. So this is The Fragile Threads of Power, Threads of Power, book one by V.E. Schwab. We then have the Hexologists. Now, I think hexologist is a great word. Um, and it's Hexologists, book one by Josiah Bancroft. And I don't quite know how to describe this. It's like there's a couple who go around sort of fixing magical problems. Um, and they learn about a king who wants to be baked into a cake. I feel slightly ridiculous saying that, but there we have it. And they realize that if this happens, it will destroy the kingdom, I'm guessing in more ways than one. 
So I don't know. It looks a little weird and zany, but if you are into that kind of thing, I highly recommend checking it out. It, you know, it looks like one of those things that either you're going to really love or really not. So this is the Hexologists. Hexologists book one by Josiah Bancroft. And then we have Bad Blood. This is Goddess with a Blade book seven. And it's by Lauren Dane. This is a series that Mika introduced me to a couple of years ago. And I love it. Um, I've known about Lauren Dane for a while. I've read some of her early books that are now out of print. They were published um, by like a, a small press and they seem to be gone now, which is very sad. But Goddess with a Blade is a fantastic, fantastic urban fantasy series with vampires and vampire hunters and goddesses. It is just incredible. If you've not read it, do check it out. This is Bad Blood, Goddess with a Blade, book seven by Lauren Dane. And we have Solstice Web. This is Moonshadow Bay, book 10 by Yasmin Gallinorn. Now, this is paranormal women's fiction, um, a little bit spooky, but that small town charm that I love so much in paranormal women's fiction. This book, um, the release date has changed a couple of times, and so now it's going to be sort of staggered. So it comes out this week on Kindle. And then I think it get like the following week, it comes out on Apple Books. So whatever your um, whatever your preferred reading platform is, if you don't see it this week, you know, keep checking week after week and you should eventually see it. Please know that this book is not going into Kindle Unlimited. Um, Gallinorn has said that she is pulling out of KU by the end of the year. So you will be able to get this um, on all platforms, but for, you know, you'll have to wait for some of them. And as has been the case with most of her indie stuff, it is not available in audio. So that is Solstice Web, Moonshadow Bay, book 10 by Yasmin Gallinorn. We also have The Witches of Bone Hill by Ava Morgan. This is, um, looks like it's coming out just as an ebook tomorrow, or I guess today, as I'm now recording this on Tuesday, like late, late in the night, Monday night, early Tuesday morning. Um, and it looks like it's just coming out in ebook. I don't see an audio. So if you're looking for the audio, um, you might have to wait a while. But this is two sisters who discover that they are Nordic witches. And there's all kinds of family secrets that come out. And it just looks so great. I know Stacy has pre-ordered this. So I will be anxious to hear what she thinks of it. It is The Witches of Bone Hill by Ava Morgan. Then we have Foul Heart Huntsman. This is Foul Lady Fortune, book two by Chloe Gong. Um, I love her like 1920s and 30s set historical fantasy with like Chinese influences. Um, sometimes she'll do like a slight retelling of like a Shakespeare play, but turn it into this glorious fantasy. 
Um, so if you've never read Chloe Gong, she should definitely be on your radar. Brooke has talked about her on the podcast before. Um, I think it was These Violet Delights that she talked about. But this is a second series. And this book is Foul Heart Huntsman, Foul Lady Fortune, book two by Chloe Gong. And Leah Stone is also releasing a new book, the first book in a new series. This is House of Ash and Shadow. It's Gilded City, book one. And again, it's by Leah Stone. And this is about a young woman who has a curse placed on her. And it keeps her from being touched by other people. Um, and now she is you know, trying to figure out how to break this curse there's a bit of romance that ensues and romance could be tricky if you can't like be touched by your partner. So we'll have to see how this goes. This is House of Ash and Shadows, Gilded City, book one by Leia Stone. We also have The Scarlet Veil. This is Scarlet Veil duology, book one by Shelby Mahiran. She wrote Serpent and Dove, a couple of years ago, um, which I know Stacy really liked, Brooke really liked. I have it here, but have not read it yet. That one was young adult fantasy set like in historical France. Um, this one looks a little different, but still definitely worth your time. I'm curious to know if we're going to have some witch action in here. I'm definitely in a witchy mood lately. Um, so this one is The Scarlet Veil. Scarlet Veil Duology, book one by Shelby Mahiran. Now I'm going to move on to romance, women's fiction, these kinds of things. And I want to first tell you about Lies and Other Love Languages by Sonali Dev. I am a huge fan of Dev's writing, whether she's writing contemporary romance or women's fiction. Um, this is her second, like, straight up kind of women's fiction novel. Her other books are contemporaries. Some of them are set um, in America. Some are not. But they are these fantastic studies of character and relationships. So I encourage everybody to, you know, if you're going to read a contemporary romance, why not make it a Sonali Dev? If you're looking for something more women's fiction-y, then this one will be right up your alley. It is Lies and Other Love Languages. And again, that is by Sonali Dev. We also have Black Hearted. This is Black Knights Incorporated Reloaded, book two by Julianne Walker. And Julianne Walker, her Black Knights Incorporated series, um, like the main series, has been something that I've been hearing about for years. It's a little bit darker romantic suspense, um, has a fair amount of grit to it. And I keep looking at it, you know, I'll see it like in my public library and I'm like, oh, I should check these out. And then for some reason, I just never do. But Next time I'm on a like romantic suspense kick, I think I will um, pick up a Julianne Walker. So this one is Black Hearted, Black Knights Incorporated, Reloaded, book two by Julianne Walker. Next up, we have Wild Love. This is Dark Horse Dive Bar, book one by Jennifer Ryan. 
And Jennifer Ryan has written a ton of contemporary romance set in the American West. And I got my start in romance reading historicals set in the West. And so over the years, um, I've kind of eased off on some of those. But every once in a while, there's something about the West that sort of calls me back. And whether it's contemporary or historical, you know, I just find myself in the mood for it. So the next time that happens, I may be picking up a Jennifer Ryan. And this one is Wild Love. Dark Horse Dive Bar, book one by Jennifer Ryan. Beth O'Leary has a new book out, and it is called The Wake Up Call. Now, you've heard us talk about Beth O'Leary on the podcast before. Um, She has written The Flat Share, The Switch, The Road Trip, The No Show, um, very nuanced romances. Um, Some of them go in directions that the reader doesn't expect. And sometimes, you know, that doesn't always work the best for some people. But I know so many people who say that the flat share was like one of their all-time favorite books. I know Stacy loves that book with all of her heart um, and also speaks very highly of the switch. So the one... Um, Beth O'Leary book that I read was the no show. And I have to be honest and say that I didn't care for that one very much, but I also have heard that it's very different from her other stuff. So this one is new and it is the wake up call by Beth O'Leary. And lastly, I want to talk about a historical romance and it is by someone I have been reading since the nineties. This is One Wicked Winter Night by Mary Jo Putney. And Mary Jo Putney just is someone who her career just continues to blossom. Um, She went through a few years where she wasn't writing as much, and that was very sad. But I would say over the past five years or so, I've seen a number of her books, you know, coming out. And it always makes me happy because I love like some of those early historicals that she wrote. Um, she had like a oh, like a Lost Lords series, and she's done some like historicals that have just a touch of like, fantasy, the paranormal. Um, and she's just an incredible author. Her romances are full of so much heart. And even if you're someone who doesn't necessarily like historicals, I will say that she brings to them something fresh each time. And so you never feel like, oh my gosh, I'm reading this. And it's just like a thousand other historicals I've read. You can just like change the names, maybe make it in a different year, but it's all the same story. That is not what I've ever gotten out of a Mary Jo Putney book. So this is One Wicked Winter Night by Mary Jo Putney. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of this Tuesday episode. I hope everyone is doing well. Um, I hope that if you're in my part of the world, that fall is treating you well. And that, of course, your TBR is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger with every passing week. Because in my world, the bigger your TBR pile, the better things are. So everyone stay safe and well, and of course, well read.